0: to faith of our fathers. Today, we feature Dr. Howard G. Hendricks. In a tribute to Dr. Hendricks, Chuck Swindoll writes, no man has meant more to me in my adult life than Dr. Howard G. Hendricks, whom all of us know simply as Prof. My wife, Cynthia, and I first met him in the fall of 1959 during my days as a first-year student at Dallas Seminary. Today, Howard Hendricks presents a study on ways to perpetuate learning. The following material is copywritten by and provided courtesy of the Moody Bible Institute. a Bible or a New Testament may I invite you to turn in our Father's Word to two seminal verses of Scripture which are freighted with implications. They are found in first Timothy chapter 4 verses 15 and 16. Paul writes to this protege Be diligent in these matters. What matters? Why the reading of scripture, the preaching, the teaching, the developing of one's giftedness, which you have in the previous paragraph. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Please note, not your perfection model of the new testament is never perfection it's progression watch your life and teaching closely and will you mark the order its character before credential It's attitudes before actions. It's being before doing. Because if you persevere in these, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Gentlemen of God, the highest mark of personal maturity is your ability to assume responsibility for your own growth and development. You can't blame others for what you are. You cannot expect others to make you what you ought to be. To do what only you can do. Leaders are many things, but most of all, they are lifelong learners. Tonight, I'd like to take my professorial prerogatives. I'd like to give you six aspects of an assignment. I hope you have a piece of paper. If your experience matches mine we tend to come to these conferences we get all pumped up excited out of our gourd go back to the alligator pit and in two weeks it's business as usual but thank the lord next year is going to be another one so i'd like to suggest Six ways for you to perpetuate the learning process in your life and in your ministry. Number one, become an intense student of yourself. It is my judgment that most pastors spend more time studying their people than they do themselves and that's tragic because you are a unique human being nobody ever showed up on this planet like you nobody will ever come just like you and the more you are like yourself the less you are like anybody else therefore the more divinely distinctive. This is why in my judgment, comparison is carnality. God never compares you with any other servant that he has. Then why do you? You remember that experience out of the life of Saul? When we read, the women sang it, that's very significant. Saul hath slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands, and that ate his lunch. And he spent the rest of his life fighting David instead of the Philistine and I'm greatly disturbed my dear brothers in Christ I must tell you I have a crucified heart tonight because I am convinced we continue to parade across our platform a number of us who are highly visible individuals and in the process we may be sending to you an absolutely erroneous and unbiblical message we are just common peanut butter jars that the excellency of the power might be of God and not of us May I suggest at least two things you ought to do if we had an hour I'd put a few more on but for the comfort of the saints Number one Do you know your strengths? If I give you a piece of paper, how long would it take you to come up with three strengths that you've got? I am responsible for interviewing a number of people for various mission boards and Christian missions and that's one of my favorite questions. Hey man, what what do you got? Well, what do you got, what's your greatest strength? Oh, Brother (laughs) Hendricks, I'm humble. Okay, let's write that down, humility. (laughs) What else you got? See, we're very uncomfortable with this. And it just blows our mind when we read Philippians and Paul says, they have an eight plus average, so do I. Hold it, Paul my shattered nerves you're getting carried away with the flesh again no that's not flesh that's fact and for Richard Farmer to get up and say I can't play the piano my friend that's not humility that's pride in its most subtle form see Paul says what do you have that you have not received answer nothing So what room is there for pride? You didn't go to the Moody bookstore and pick up the gift of exposition that you got. That's a God-given grace gift. And you are responsible. And until you know what your strengths are, you will never develop your confidence. And men, when you send kids to seminary or to the Moody Bible Institute, Let's send them with the confidence not in themselves, but in the God who called them. It's our number one problem in our training schools today. I've done done studies now in seven evangelical seminaries across America, and the number one problem is a lack of confidence. And it's crippling our work. Secondly, what are your weaknesses? Oh, well, I'm glad you got around to that. I got a whole pile of those. You got more than one card? Yeah, I got a fistful of them here. And the reason it's easier for most of us to come up with our weaknesses is that we've been doing the devil's work for so long. Well, look at me that way. The devil is the accuser of the brethren. Every time you start to do something for the Lord, devil comes along and says, you're not trying to do that, are you? Well, you know, I, I was thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you'll never make it. Well, yeah, I know, devil, that's a real problem. I mean, <laughs> You know, just you and me, devil, all the way. <laughs> See, Most of us spend more of our time believing the devil than we do believe in God. Your strengths develop your confidence your weaknesses develop your faith and it is not until you understand where you are weak that you are ever in a place to be a significant Christian leader so you lead on the basis of your strengths you staff on the basis of your weaknesses and that's the art of practical leadership well you say where in the world am I going to get this input let me give you a couple suggestions try your wife (laughs) I always think of that great story you know of the guy that goes to the back for what I call the glorification of the worm ceremony person comes by and says my pastor you got to be one of the great expositors of this generation. So he's enamored of that stuff. So much so that he decides to share it with his wife, only he's a little more subtle. He says, you know what someone said there? No. What did they say? They said uh, that I'm probably one of the world's greatest expositors in this generation. I wonder how many great expositors there are. She says, I don't know, but one less than you think. (laughs) This is why I tell my students you don't have a wife, get one. (laughs) Let's face it, most of us guys in the ministry married so far beyond ourselves, it's pitiful. Everybody knows that it. it's about time you catch on. <laughs> Try your children. Tilt. Children are very perceptive. See, I can pull the wool over your eyes any day of the week. I cannot fool a kid. You are like a pane of glass to a child, especially if he lives with you. What about your elders or your deacons, who, by the way, are not the enemy? (laughs) It's very important that you understand where the enemy is. And I am finding over and over again, we're talking a better game than we're playing, man. Guys say to me, oh, you know, my elders, they follow me. Yeah, when they follow you, they're great. But what about when they don't? do you follow them well that's too convicting let's move on (laughs) what about your friends I mean true friends biblical friends blessed are the wounds of a man's friend you got anybody like that to tell it like it is what about your enemies what about the people who are opposed to you It's amazing what you learn from these people. They're very perceptive sometimes. Sometimes too much so. What about some tests? You ever take a test to find out what kind of a person you really are? I am so Concerned as I move around in a variety of missions to find people in the wrong place And here's an influencer. Here's a people person and where do we have him? We got him hiding in a room someplace where he doesn't see a person all day and Can't figure out why the guy isn't doing the job for Jesus Christ. Are you an innovator? I have a dear friend, he is now on his eighth church. He started eight of them. That's his gift. And he starts a church and when he gets it to 250, he'll always call us at the seminary and say, okay, I'm ready, send a man. And then he moves out, takes his job again, to keep body and soul together starts another church you know what I discover? I discover in my studies that some of the innovators ultimately turn out to be the embalmers see the people who start something can very easily be the people who bury it because they don't understand that they are great at starting things but we need to bring somebody else in to build on that foundation and make the work permanent. Well, there's a second assignment I want to give you, and that is you can make permanent what you have learned at this conference by exposure to significant people. And I want to suggest four groups that you ought to think of. In fact, if I came to your study, I would ask you questions in each of these areas. Number one, who are your mentors? You See every man in the ministry needs three people in his life. He needs a Paul who will build into his life. Some older, more seasoned saint, he's not smarter than you are, he's not more gifted than you are, he's just been further down the road you need a Barnabas that's a guy probably very near your age not impressed with you therefore can tell it like it is he has no invested interest other than his love for you and you need a Timothy you need a young man into whose life you are building if I've had one I've had a couple dozen men since our workshop on mentoring ask, how can I get this type of person? One dear brother came up just broken up. He said I'd give anything if I could find a man who would build into my life. There are a lot of them. There are a lot of them right in this auditorium. And what you need to do is to get down on your knees and start praying. See, I still believe that where prayer focuses, power falls. You may not take prayer seriously, but God does. If you start saying, Lord, I want a mentor, I want a man who's willing to build into my life. Don't be surprised if God brings somebody across your path. But you may have to take a little initiative. Maybe you have to start with a guy and say, hey, let's meet together every Wednesday or every other Wednesday, whatever is convenient for you, and let's pray together. Watch out of that kind of a relationship. A mentoring relationship developed. Secondly, you need some models, both alive and dead. And by the way, will you please talk more about your models? If we would talk more about our models, we'd have more models to talk about. But you see, the pedestals are empty. Grabbed me so graphically in my barber shop right around the corner from the seminary. This little guy I've been cultivating for a couple years. And the other day I said to him, hey son, who do you want to be like? He looked me straight in the eye and said, mister, I ain't found nobody I want to be like. You think he's an exception? See, who do you want to be like? I mean, is there somebody who sort of fleshes out the characteristics that you would love to have in the ministry? Why don't you observe them? Why don't you listen to them? Why don't you seek to spend some time with them? And whatever you do, read some biographies of some of the great saints that God has used in another generation. Third, you need an accountability group. I want to hit you with a fact. I hope you never recover from this. You ready for this? I just finished a study. Two hundred and forty-six evangelical men who went down the morals tubes in the last two years. Of the two hundred and forty-six, one of the most powerful correlations is that none of them had an accountability group. Oh, one said he did. John MacArthur found him in a bar with a collection of chicks that were supposedly his converts and his accountability group. And MacArthur got rather articulate. Chuck Swindoll was sharing with me some time ago something that also marked me. He said, Prof, I've got five guys that I think would really die for me. Only two of them are in my church. I can call them any time, day or night, anywhere in the United States or overseas and they will come immediately to my side. But he said not too long ago we were meeting together and one of the guys said, hey Chuck, We've heard you say something five times in the last month, but you're not doing it. Now either stop saying it or start doing it. And he looked at me and says, how's it grab you for accountability? See, that's good. You got anybody like that? Fourth, why don't you form a discussion group? You know, I'm so tired of meeting with people who ought to have so much to discuss who can only discuss the most trivial of issues. They can talk about the weather, I mean, that's brilliant. And maybe that's a sign because you can't do anything about it. That's the kind of thing they like to talk about. The key in the discussion group is the mix. Formulate a little think tank. I've got one, there are seven of us in this group. We just met about a month ago. We fly from all over America. We spend three days together thinking and sharing in that discussion group. Oh, occasionally we'll read some book together and then we'll come and discuss this, use it as a base, but it's kind of a free-for-all type of thing. Man, I come back from that type of experience, and man, I got a new lease on life. I'm ready to go. I think what you will discover is the better you know others, the better they can help you. And I would encourage you, if you form a group, just make sure you're at the bottom of the group. Always choose people for the group who are better than you are. Then you're the one that gets the most out of it. Well, third, some of you are going to have to take some time to think through these profound concepts, I can see. Third, oh, if I get off on this, we'll be here all night, so pray for me. You need to do more quality reading and listening. See, readers are leaders. Leaders are readers. And the person who can read and does not read is no better off than the person who cannot read at all. Read widely. Read wisely. See, most of us as evangelicals are too provincial. We only read the party line We only read that which fortifies our prejudice And that's why we are not moving out as we heard last night And that's one of the exciting things to be associated with Tony in the city of Dallas Is to see that every time we get together, and it's often He's launching something new to impact the community for Jesus Christ But it takes a person who reads and who does some thinking. That's why, men, I tell you lovingly, that's why most of us are disengaged from the society to which God has called us to minister. That's why we're answering the questions nobody's asking and scratching people where they do not itch. I was in a church not too long ago. I asked me to come and evaluate. Finest church you have ever seen for 1946. Unfortunate we're not in 46, but if we were, they're loaded for bear. <laughs> Thing is going down like a ski slope. Finally we got together for a discussion and, you know, in order to provoke a little thinking I said, I understand you guys got a finance problem. Yeah, Brother Henriks, that's it, we're really, we're really hurting financially. He said, i got a good proposal. Oh, really? What would you suggest? I said, I would suggest that you build a fence around this church and charge admission to come in so that they can see what it's like in the last century. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly what happened. I mean, we had us a discussion that wouldn't quit. Can I make one suggestion to you? It's come with a lot of agony, but try it at least. Most of you read too much when you do read and reflect too little. Give you a new pattern. Next time you're going to spend an hour reading, let me give you another way to go about it. Spend 40 minutes reading, 20 minutes reflecting and watch what happens. Does it bother you that you read so much and remember so little? you know you read such good stuff and then when it comes to putting together your sermon you know it's like looking for the lost cord to find a good illustration for this point Though so you probably come across a half a dozen of them even in the last week if you are reading the right stuff and then listening Well, I say you think I ought to listen to sermons of course you ought to listen to sermons if it's for the right reason Don't listen to sermons to simply get an outline or to copy somebody else's mode of preaching. Listen to a sermon to ask, what can I learn from this individual? Here is an individual who is grabbing in his illustrations, am I? What kind of illustrations does he use? Is he constantly talking about the numinal nature of man, that, you know, that excites him. Well, try a little secular reading. Now I know that's a dirty inclusion, and they may wash my mouth out with soap and water. If you have not read the most recent book by John Gardner entitled On Leadership, you need to read it i have read i think everything that is written on leadership at least that i could get my hands on and there's nothing in the league of that book have You read chuck colson's against the night you see, some of us have done a lot of studies about the nature of the culture. Chuck has come along, I told him the other day at a banquet where we were speaking together, I said, Chuck, I just want you to know, in my judgment, that's the best book you put out because it takes really very difficult material and boils it down in such an effective way that the average layman reading the thing can grab it and understand what's happening. And you need to plug into your culture Or else you will discover, this is why you're not communicating to your culture. Provides a different perspective, a different grid. The fourth thing I want to suggest is that you enroll in periodic courses, in seminars, in a degree program. You've been in a university lately, some of you are in university towns or there's one not too far, why don't you drop in and take a course to find out what the kids you are preparing to go to that university are going to be exposed to? We go to some of the universities in our areas, we take a legal secretary, we go in and take word for word what this guy's going to say and come to our high school kids and say, this is what you're going to find when you go to the university. How would you handle it? And of course, we've got all of the studies. The moment you expose a person to material, before they are exposed to it in a real life setting, you take all of the sting out of it this kid goes away to a university and some guy with a PhD says you know just casually why you know obviously the New Testament documents are not reliable as every scholar knows and the little kid says yeah well that's just right you know we <laughs> got a fuddy duddy I mean I guess he's right and furthermore they never said anything about that down at the church I I bet they don't have answers to that so we got people who have the scholarship to ask the right questions even if they don't have the scholarship to provide the right answers. And our kids are sucked in on this type of thing. Public seminars. Gene and I took two of them at Harvard and we will never be the same. One on marriage and the family and one on senior citizens. The end of the whole time. Best analysis I have ever been exposed to on the conditions in America. When it comes to answers, their final conclusion to the seminar was, the only thing you can do is throw more money at the problem. And one lawyer gets up, and in language I would not repeat, said, throw more money. We have thrown more money in that direction in the last 25 years, and every year the family life in America goes lower. See, I think sometimes we're sort of defensive. We're we're, we're intimidated and fail to recognize that God has given us the answer to the problems of our society in the Word of God if we are willing to pay the price in terms of communicating it so that people can understand. What about degree programs? I was thrilled when when Howard Whaley got up this morning and talked about the Moody Graduate Program and our dear brother, who was the honoree tonight, can you think of it hundred and thirty miles, one way? As an educator, I'm here to tell you that's motivation. See that's what we need, somebody who's so hungry and thirsty, they will pay any price in order to do that. And we watch somebody that's a great communicator and we say, man, I'd love to be like that. And I say, I'm not so sure because I'm not sure you're willing to pay the price that that person has paid most of the seminaries today have doctor of ministry programs in my judgment some of the finest programs in America today are in the doctor of ministry programs whether you're talking about Denver, whether you're talking about Trinity here, whether you're talking about grace you name it Gordon, they all offer some incredibly excellent courses that you ought to plug in. And may I say, congratulations for showing up this week. Let me give you a fifth and last one, and it's probably the most important. I told you six, so don't don't get your ball lost in the weeds. (laughs) saw some of you where did go I mean a V.V. V. Hill can take four years to give you one message you know and this is the one I want to underscore you need to cultivate your inner life There is a subtle, erroneous mentality that seeps into the ministry. You know what it is? The error of the double standard. See, somehow feeling that you play in a different league. For instance, if I ask any of you, came right down Sat next to you in that chair and said, Look, I just led a guy to Christ. What would you do with him? Well, there isn't anybody in here who wouldn't say, Well, first thing I do is, you know, get him into the Word so he can grow, teach him how to pray, teach him to share his faith. Good explanation. Do you do that? See what makes us think that the only way that guide can grow is by getting into the word, by sharing his faith, by praying, by uniting with a good fellowship, but somehow we're exempt from that. I don't know how many times I ask pastors, I mean, how many people have you led to Christ in the last year? What? You mean how many people have come forward in the service? Uh, uh. They probably were brought by somebody else. I'm talking about you know you ever have pagans in your home Pastors, all brother Hendricks house is a christian home <laughs> so, so i can't think of a better place to drop pagans than in a christian home can you oh he says man there's a lot of smoke Oh, i said, put out ashtrays dad you want to borrow one You know, I know what you're saying. Well, you know, I, I, I can't have, you know, I can't lead people to Christ, man. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in the ministry. <laughs> I said, well, look, you know, being in the ministry does not exempt you from being a Christian. <laughs> you know, why don't someday you take off the ecclesiastical robes get rid of your stained glass voice you know your prayer language and just become a human being and sit across the table from me tell me about Jesus this is what we need the basics are basic you never graduate from the School of Discipleship. And my friend, let's be honest, there's nobody here but us chickens. It's the most lethal form of pride, pure and simple. A student called me up sometime, he had a very serious problem. We talked as well as we could in a telephone conversation. He said, do you know anybody that you could recommend? I said, well, how far are you from Atlanta, he told me. I said, do me a favor. I said, go over to see Charles Stanley. I know he's busy, but I'll bet he'll give you some time because they think he could help you. So he went to see Dr. Stanley, and he very graciously carved out some time. In the course of the conversation, as he was explaining what his problem was, Dr. Stanley said, uh, how much time do you spend in prayer? Well, he said, Dr. Stanley, you know, that's, that's a real problem in my Christian life. So, yeah, I understand. So he went on talked. Finally, he said, uh, when did you develop your problem of pride? He said, I beg your pardon? He said, when did you develop your problem of pride? And he said, I thought to myself, you know, this guy's psychic. I mean, certainly I have a problem with pride, but I mean, how does he know it? So he said, why did you ask me? He said, because when I ask you, how much time do you spend in prayer? You told me, not very much. And that's proof positive to me. You're shot through with pride. You think you can pull off the ministry by yourself, without God, and you can't. See, Jesus said it, without me, you can do Oh, the awful finality of that word. Something, nothing. I find there's a direct correlation between the quality of my spiritual life and the impact of my ministry. And I can tell you on the basis of more experience than I would like to have, don't depend upon your sermon preparation for your spiritual life. Health is much more than the absence of sickness. It's the presence of wellness. Can I give you a final exam tonight? You ready for this? Only three questions. Question number one. Do you think God wants you to be a man of God, yes or no? Well, say something. Okay, five of you do. Do you think God has provided all of the resources by which you might become a man of God? Yes or no? Question number three. Why aren't you a man of God? There's only one answer I can come to, and I keep coming back to it. It's basically because I don't want to. I haven't chosen to be that kind of a man. See, don't blame your family. Don't blame your church. Don't blame your circumstances. It's right here. J. Wilbur Chapman great evangelist, summarized it in this way. The rule that governs my life is this. Anything that dims my vision of Christ, or takes away my taste for personal Bible study, or cramps my prayer life, or makes Christian work difficult, is wrong for me and uh, I must as a Christian turn away from it I suspect that most of you every week ask your people to make a decision when's the last time you made a decision God wants me to be this kind of a man he has provided all of the resources whereby I might become that man the ball is in my court you've got to make the decision so much has happened this week I know I have some decisions that I have to make. I've already made many. And so do you. Father, what a privilege it is to serve you. We are so honored that you would count us faithful, placing us into the ministry. We recognize that we have many failings many limitations we also have infinite resources supernatural power and we thank you for what you have done for us these days we came at the outset praying that you would do a permanent supernatural work and you have been faithful and now Lord we made some decisions decisions that will ultimately determine our destiny I pray that you will make us faithful. That what we have promised, we may also perform. That you will change us. And as a result, you will use us as a change element in the life of those to whom we minister. And I want to thank you in advance for what you are going to do because we come expectantly through Christ our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to Howard Hendricks. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.